welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our podcast today will be a little different. Because the Alabama Historical Association postponed its 2020 convention, Secretary Mark Wilson has arranged video panel discussions about the future of Alabama history shown live on Facebook. The AHA recorded these sessions, and to reach a larger audience, we are proud to present them as edited audio in the Alabama History Podcast. Welcome to this program on 2020 and the future of Alabama history. I am Mark Wilson, Secretary of the Alabama Historical Association and Director of the Caroline Marshall Drawn Center for the Arts and Humanities in the College of Liberal Arts at Auburn University. This is our third program on 2020 and the future of Alabama history, and we are glad that you are here. But first, Phrasing Taylor, President of the Alabama Historical Association, has a word of welcome. Phrasing? Good afternoon, and it is a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. For my generation and others, we learned about the Civil War from one viewpoint. That has changed over recent years, but there are still relics of that viewpoint among us today. We have been reminded this year of how much work there is yet to be done, and I'm thankful that we are able to discuss this topic today with Calvin Chappelle of the Alabama Historical Commission. Thank you. Thank you, President Taylor. We are joined today by Calvin Chappelle, a fifth-generation Alabamian born in Montgomery, director of the Confederate Memorial Park in Marbury, Alabama, a historic site of the Alabama Historical Commission. Welcome, Calvin. Thank you. Great to be here. Glad that you're with us. 2020, a historic year for many reasons, of course, but also for understanding history. Communities, local and state governments are making changes related to monuments and memorials to the Confederacy, and some are moving those monuments and memorials from the public square to designated parks and museums. You direct Confederate Memorial Park and its museum, and so you have a particularly interesting perspective on the changes that are taking place. Uh, but Calvin, let's begin with the story of this historic site. How did it begin and for what purpose? Beginning in the 1880s, 28 northern states had established homes for Union Army veterans. And these homes, they received both state and federal funding. Around the same time, homes for Confederate veterans are established in 15 southern states as well as California. And despite the press post-war economy and no federal funding for former Confederate soldiers, Southern state governments sought to provide for veterans through pensions and through the creation of soldiers' homes. The driving force behind the establishment of a care facility for former soldiers in Alabama was a man named Jefferson Manley Falk, who was an attorney and a public official in Montgomery, who had actually served in the 8th Confederate Cavalry. Faulkner donated 
102 acres of land in Mountain Creek, which is located in the southeast corner of Chilton County. Mountain Creek was considered an ideal site for such a facility because it already had a reputation as being a healthy area. High elevation, numerous springs, running streams. It also had convenient access to the Ellington Railroad. So many well-to-do families from Montgomery, including Faulkner's, had built summer homes at Mountain Creek to avoid the occasional malaria and yellow fever epidemics in Montgomery. Faulkner had organized a number of fundraisers to support this effort, and assisting him was a United Confederate Veterans Camp, which was named in his honor. The stated goal of the UCV Camp, Jeff Faulkner, was to see that all Confederate veterans living in Alabama who could not take care of themselves were properly cared for. They held many charity events such as dances and quilt raffles and speeches, all held to raise money for the construction of the soldiers' home. Actually, one of the largest fundraising efforts was construction of a building called Memorial Hall. The first floor of Memorial Hall was constructed using 500 memorial logs. Each were purchased with a $10 donation, and for that donation, the donor would have the name of a Confederate soldier mounted on a brass plate on the log. The response to this was excellent. Donations of money came from many different sources, and records show that more than 500 memorial logs were actually purchased. Other donations came from numerous individuals, schools, church groups, even small children. Other sizable donations came in the form of materials everything from lumber to dairy cows. Some donations came from notable individuals, including Booker T. Washington, who personally sent $100. Faulkner had already worked with Washington during the Alabama State Fair. Another interesting donation was from L. Torres, who was commander-in-chief of the Grand Army of the Republic, which was the Union Veterans Organization, and Torres encouraged other GAR camps to contribute money. They would actually raise enough money to construct one of the cottages at Mountain Creek, which was named in their honor. It was called the Blue and Gray Cottage. The construction of the facility actually began in April of 1902, and in May, the first veterans were admitted to the soldiers' home. Any Confederate veteran from any state was eligible to be admitted to the home, but they had to meet a set of requirements. You had to live in the state for at least two years. You had to have served honorably. This was verified by the military records held by the U.S. War Department. And you had to have a yearly income of less than $400. It was pretty much considered the poverty line at that point in time. The large number of veterans applying to the home soon caused Faulkner to realize that the project was bigger than just himself. And so he reaches out to uh, the state for assistance. And in response, in October of 1903, the state of Alabama assumes ownership and administration of the home. Faulkner is actually named uh, chairman of the executive committee, and he will serve in that role until his death in 1907. Wives were also admitted with their veteran husbands, as long as they had been married for at least five years and were over 60 years of age. Initially, wives whose husbands had died at the home were supposed to leave the home, but there's no indication that this ever occurred. And in fact, the rule was changed in 1915 to allow them to stay. In total, the soldier's home consisted of about 22 buildings, including 10 cottages, an administrative building, a hospital, mess hall, several barns, and other outbuildings. 
and it was intended to hold a maximum of about 100 individuals. Although we know during the peak years between 1914 and 1918, as many as 104 residents actually lived there. So in many ways, this was his own self-serving community. We know that veterans did travel occasionally to Montgomery. They might go up the road to the post office, but they also attended other Confederate reunions in other states. In fact, a handful went to the 1913 reunion in Gettysburg for the 50th anniversary. The home also had frequent visitors. It was promoted by the Elnan Railroad as a popular stop uh, during their travels, and they held many events, including Fourth of July celebrations, of course, Confederate Memorial Day celebrations, and even fiddle competitions. But as the years passed, the number of veterans dwindled. Eventually, everybody lived in the Soldiers' Home Hospital. The last residing veteran would die in 1934, and in 1939, there were five remaining widows at the home, and the state found other places for them to live and closed the facility. During its 37 years of existence, somewhere between 650 and 800 Confederate veterans, their wives and widows, lived at the home. So how many buildings remain now at the park? None, really. There are some leftover foundations and some ruins. There's what's left over from the intricate water system. You can see some of the carbide gas tanks. But basically, everything was dismantled when the home closed in 1939. So you have a museum. Tell us about the museum. Let me tell you a little bit more about the grounds, and it'll probably answer your other question. Since it was state-owned, everything was surplused. Some buildings had burned over the years. They didn't rebuild them. But they took materials from the homes to build schoolhouses. A lot of materials went to Selma, Alabama. Uh, the YMCA used them to build little cabins. In fact, I think a few of those actually still survive today. For many years, it was kind of advertised as a minor park or a recreation area. People had different ideas about what to use the site for. One of the ideas was to turn it into a national cemetery. Uh, another was to create a center for rehabilitation of wayward youth. Someone else wanted to create a man-made lake. None of this actually comes to pass. Um, but in 1960, the, the Alabama Park System gets a new director, and he is very much energized about making improvements to the park. And this isn't to say that other people weren't interested in the site. People did take care of the cemeteries for a little while, but they eventually fall into disrepair. And in fact, in the 1950s, there's a series of newspaper articles where people are complaining about the condition of the cemeteries. And so groups like the United Daughters of the Confederacy and the Sons of Confederate Veterans are working to revitalize and clean up those cemeteries. And so it's a collaborative effort between those heritage groups and the state and groups like the Boy Scouts that kind of create the park, what it is today in some form or fashion. The park is officially established sorry, in 1964, and it's placed under the administration of the Alabama Historical Commission in 1971. The first museum that opens actually opens in 1980, and it's a small two-room log cabin that kind of doubles as a welcome center. Our museum now that we're in was built in 2007. The park still consists of the original 102 acres. There's two cemeteries where 298 veterans and 15 widows are buried. We're part of the Alabama Treasure Forest, and we have a walking trail. There's plenty to see on site, as well as a couple of historic buildings, uh, which are the Marlboro Methodist Church and the Mountain Creek Post Office, which were just up the road in Marlboro, but were brought to our site in the mid-1980s for preservation. There's plenty to see in the park grounds itself before you actually get to the museum. 
our museum today really interprets the life of the Alabama Confederate soldier from young recruit until aging veteran. Of course, it talks about Alabama's role in the Civil War. So we have different panels, different sections throughout the museum that might talk about secession, how Alabama prepared for war in the very beginning. Uh, we have sections on artillery, Navy, the cavalry, infantry. Topics include uh, subjects like music, uh, life on the home front. We have a lot of weapons on display from the time period. We talk about Alabama arsenals, how Alabama had manufacturing facilities that were assisting with the war effort. And of course, we talk a lot about the veterans themselves, their post-war experience and life at the soldier's home. All of this is done through several hundred objects that are on display, numerous text panels, and then throughout the museum are quotes from Confederate veterans and Confederate soldiers that give an in-depth perspective of their life in, in time period. So you have some visitors who come to walk the trails to see the historic church, the historic post office, and then others who come for the museum and come for both, I'm sure. Certainly, we have a lot of the locals use the site. They use our pavilions and picnic tables, and they have family reunions there. And of course, we have outdoor festival events as well. So we have a lot of local traffic and a lot of folks that come from out of town. They see the, the signs on the interstate and pull over to, to visit the site and the museum. Good. And I saw on your website that the state legislature established the park, as you said, in 1964, and the legislature said, quote, as a shrine to the honor of Alabama's citizens of the Confederacy. And of course, this was part of the Civil War centennial commemoration. And it's 1964. So, of course, it's the same year as the important civil rights event. I think it's fair to say that all public memorials reflect the times in which they are designed and constructed, and they're snapshots of that moment as they seek to memorialize the past. But it's also true that our interpretation of the past changes as society changes, as power is shared and less concentrated, as different questions related to the human experience are asked. And this makes museums important because they provide an opportunity for the public to consider various perspectives and approaches that they might not have considered before. So if all of that's true, what are the ways in which your museum helps visitors understand the Civil War for current and future generations? I think if you look back at the work of Jefferson Manley Faulkner, his early creation of Memorial Hall was in some ways a precursor to what the site would become today, right? a memorial. In many ways, Faulkner considered the soldier's home to be a living memorial. It's kind of a tribute to the average Confederate soldier, which is really kind of what the museum focuses on. But I think as a modern society, we have to be careful not to generalize history or to draw specific parallels or conclusions. History is rarely that clean cut, but museums are a great place for both learning and reflection. One of the wonderful things about museums is our ability to add new content and to evolve when needed. This can certainly be said for our museum, continually updated things since we opened in 2007, and we will continue to update moving forward. We also step outside of the physical museum and provide interpretation through walking tours and living histories and, and other things. But whatever the approach, what we want to promote is critical thinking. Uh, right now, the museum does a great job examining Alabama's Civil War story and the history of the soldier's home. 
But all museums need to be aware that the ways in which future generations both absorb history and their examination of history from the current standpoint. I think as we look to the future, it will be important for us to include new interpretations while still honoring the original purpose of our site and museum. So it's not necessarily an easy task, but it's not meant to be. For instance, it will be important to acknowledge the power of Civil War memory, uh, how Union veterans, Confederate veterans, and African Americans all sought to tell and preserve their own distinct memories of the war, how they experienced the war, how they participated in it, how it would be remembered by future generations. So I think these sentiments have a powerful influence on how we interpret and feel about the Civil War today. And so I look forward to bringing some of those interpretations into our narrative at the museum. We're also working on plans for a new display case, which would be used for rotating exhibits. That way we can focus on other important facets of the Civil War. So that might be the role of Union troops in Alabama, which would, of course, include African-American soldiers who served the USCT, or maybe it's the role that women played during and after the war, or a special exhibit on music, or medicine, or food in the commissary department. Really, the, the possibilities are endless. But I think whatever we do, it's important that we encourage constructive dialogue along the way. This can really be as simple as a small discussion with a visitor, or it could be a larger collaborative effort involving a partnership with multiple uh, cultural organizations. And so really what matters is that we're willing to talk about history, that we're willing to listen and respect interpretations that differ from our own. Excellent. Thanks. And you've been in the museum field for 20 years. And so as you're entering into your third decade, it seems like you are in a good position to be able to do that. And, we're, and I've got another question for you, but I'm happy to take questions from folks who are watching live right now. So if you have a question for Calvin, love to see that in the comment section. We'll ask it. I do want to ask, thinking about just 28 miles down the road from you. In Montgomery is the internationally recognized Equal Justice Initiative's Legacy Museum, from enslavement to mass incarceration, and the memorial for victims of lynching. So when visitors go to that museum, they learn about the horrors of slavery and its aftermath, realized through segregation, white supremacy, lynchings, etc. If EJI's museum, which talks about the legacies of slavery, and a Confederate memorial museum could sit down and have a conversation. What do you think these two museums could say to each other? It opens up the opportunity for, for dialogue. I, I've been to uh, both sites managed by the Equal Justice Initiative, and it offers obviously a different interpretation that we offer. And I think we're somewhat specific in the history that we interpret. But if people could visit both sites, I think it's going to broaden their understanding of not only the Civil War and Alabama's role in the Civil War, but also kind of what comes before and what comes after. Civil War history really doesn't begin in 1861 and end in 1865. In some ways, we're still living the repercussions of the war and, and things were happening before the war that causes the war. I think anytime cultural organizations can partner and to use the strengths of other organizations to tell a more complete story. That is an ideal situation for any visitor or any average citizen. It exposes them to 
a lot of different information and again encourages critical thinking. If visitors go to the museum now, how does the museum interpret slavery and do you move forward in time with exhibits on reconstruction? We don't talk a lot about reconstruction. That would be an opportunity for that rotating exhibit that I was talking about. We certainly acknowledge that slavery was the main cause of the war. All historians pretty much acknowledge that nowadays. But the real focus is kind of Alabama and the Alabama soldier and the soldier's home. So that is, that is our primary focus, but that is certainly things that we could discuss further through either special exhibits or special events. Thanks. And somebody has a question of wanting to see some photos of the park, and we will put on Facebook a link to their website so that you can go and maybe follow them on Facebook. Yeah, we, I post a lot of photos on Facebook, so that'd be the best place to go. So here we are in 2020 with a renewed interest as a result of all of the changes and the challenges that are taking place, and a real emphasis on understanding the past and knowing that the way we understand the past is to continue to study the past. What are some of your hopes for the future, in addition to what you've said, in terms of the interest of people? What are your hopes from where you sit for the future? Well, anybody who runs a museum or historic site, uh, the challenge is always getting the people to their location, right? We want people to come in the doors. We want people to experience and to ask questions. You mentioned renewed interest. I hope the interest goes beyond internet chatter, beyond just talking to your neighbor or your family member about it. I hope it encourages people to get out. And of course, I know that's a little bit challenging now, but to experience museums, to experience historic sites, to poke around on the web and learn from videos like this and conversations that we're having, to understand more and to broaden their perspective, to listen to different stories, because there are so many topics about Civil War history. People specialize in just buttons or uniforms, or some people focus on slavery or the life of people or the life of women. It's such a broad topic. There's much for us to learn. And so I hope that what's going on now in our society also encourages people to learn more, you know, to pick up a book or visit a museum. Excellent. And, of course, museums are always seeking to provide events, certainly not during a pandemic. But what are some of the events that you hope to provide the public in the future that will give people more of an experience of history? You know, I started some walking tours about a year ago, and I think it's a great opportunity to come and learn about the Soldier's Home. It's such a beautiful site that we have, and so I think people should come out and walk the grounds with me. Not only were you a beautiful site, but it's interesting to see how people cared for the elderly and for our veterans back then. Uh, we also host Living Histories, and that is kind of developing. We've, we've hosted those for school groups before. Uh, we're leaning towards a different approach, a kind of immersive events now. We have some reproduction Civil War barracks that can actually house up to 100 individuals. Two years ago, January 2019, we had those barracks filled. And, and guys were basically living the life of a soldier in 1862. And I want to broaden our historical interpretation in that regard, too. I think there's a lot to be said for life on the home front or for the African-American stories that those stories have not been told in the park before. So hopefully I can find the, the right appropriate living historians to assist me in those goals. 
Could you imagine a situation in which the park becomes a home for some of the Civil War memorials that have been removed from Alabama cities and towns, thereby providing a platform to examine memorialization as a practice? Yeah, I mean, that certainly has been suggested. That is up to the Alabama legislature. I encourage the person who asked that question, go visit the Alabama Historical Commission website, which is ahc.alabama.gov. And there's our resources tab there, and there's a statement on Monument. At this point in time, it's all protected under Alabama law. The legislature would have to change that. So we won't know anything in that regard until maybe February. I imagine that would be a, a hot topic of discussion moving forward there. That's an important conversation that communities are having, and I think everyone watching should be in touch with your local elected official. It's a unique time to be a museum in 2020 with all of the challenges that we're facing in terms of the pandemic, in terms of the access, but you are open and folks can come out. We are open seven days a week, aside from state holidays. Right now, we are limiting the museum to 10 people at a time. And we are asking that everyone wear masks and you know, follow that six-foot social distancing. The park is open daily from dawn to dusk. If a small group wanted to make a reservation, I'd be happy to give a personal tour of the facilities as well and answer any additional questions. Excellent. Well, we appreciate you being with us today. We appreciate the work that you do for Alabama history, and we appreciate that the future is changing, but yet we're all a part of it and trying to make the stories that we tell as inclusive and as relevant as possible to everyone's interest. Thanks for being with us. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at City Stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.